Well, with that, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, picking up in verse 18, going to the end of the chapter, verse 34. Title, title of our study is The Saving Power of Jesus. Now, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew. We saw in chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, which i got to tell you, if you've never read it, it is like the greatest sermon of all time. It is phenomenal. I mean, uh, and if you've got one of those Bibles where it's red when Jesus is speaking, you'll notice that whole section is just blaring red. I mean, it is phenomenal. Uh, Jesus was very radical in the things that he said, challenging the status quo of the day. Um, and then we saw last week, uh, the early part of chapter 8, uh, that Jesus uh, performed many miracles, and crowds began to follow him. And, uh, and we'll see that happens again in the latter part of chapter 8. Um, but yet, we'll see that Jesus isn't looking for large crowds, right? Which is actually, I think, the opposite of many people today. We'll see that Jesus cares more about authentic disciples following him. He cares more about the quality of that disciple than the quantity of the disciples. And so, um, hopefully that will encourage us as we examine God's word together. So, with that, we'll pick up here in verse 18. We'll go through verse 22. We'll take a look at the cost of discipleship. So, Matthew 8, verse 18. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their own dead. We'll pause there. Now, the first thing we see here is this, this scribe comes to Jesus. And a scribe was someone who was an expert in the law of Moses uh, and an expert in the Jewish religion. And he would also help the Sanhedrin, uh, the Jewish council, as a clerk or recorder of what was said. But he was also, in a sense, a spiritual lawyer. And, um, and so he had a lot of, lot of knowledge of the scriptures. And most of the... The scribes at that time worked with the Pharisees, who were a very religious group. They were big on the rites and the rituals and the rules and the ceremonies of religion. And so this teacher of the, the religious law comes to Jesus, and he sees Jesus as a great teacher. And the man says to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And I don't know, I was trying to put myself in his shoes and think, well, maybe he's thinking as a scribe, I have something to offer Christ, right? I can put, I, I can use my services for good here. I can become a scribe for Jesus. I can take notes. I can be put to use and, and help him. And I think if that was the approach of, of the church today, many people would say, this is great, and assign him a task to do very quickly. Um, but we see Jesus takes a different approach, right? And, and the truth is, if you're saved by faith in Christ, by the grace of God, your life begins to be transformed. And you begin to want to serve Christ, not because you have to, but because you want to. And so Jesus speaks to this over-enthusiastic follower about the need to appreciate the cost in following him and really following him. 
And Jesus begins to share this illustration. He says, foxes have dens and birds have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And you see, the foxes, there were things that, that they would understand. Foxes in that area would usually share that same den over many generations. Uh, and then the birds in those areas would use their nest all year long. But then every year they would make a new nest. And they would leave it behind. But they'd come back to that general area. So Jesus is saying, in essence, if you're going to follow me, I'm not going to stay in one place very long. And, uh, and when he does travel, it's not going to be lodging in the best hotels or the best houses. Um, he's, it's going to be a life on the move, a life uh, of, of continuing to minister to people as he goes from place to place. It's not going to be a life full of comfort and a life full of ease. And so, in other words, Jesus is telling us, man, you need to count the cost. You need to make sure you really understand what you're going to sign up for here. And, and the truth is, if Christ is first and foremost in your life, you'll follow him anywhere. Um, you, you'll be his servant and be ready to do his will. And then we see another disciple comes and makes a similar statement. And it is interesting that it uses the word here, disciples. And it's important that we understand what that word means. It means a student, it means a learner, it means a follower. And it's important you, we read the Bible and we understand those things in context. Um, because we see this is a disciple that uh, is not going to actually pursue Christ and keep following him. right? And we see the 12 disciples did. And that, that shows us this word has this broad meaning. So it's important we understand the context. Uh, this was a, a student or follower, but... He wasn't all in in following Christ. And we also see this inconsistency in his speech, right? He says, Lord, which is that acknowledgement that Jesus is the master. He's the boss, applesauce, right? But when you say, Lord, let me go do this, you're telling the king of the universe what to do, right? You're, you're telling him, look, I love you and all, but I'm going to go do this. And, and we see that, if Jesus is the Lord, if he's the master and the king, it, it can't be that way with telling God how things should be done, right? Jesus has got to be first and foremost as the king of his kingdom. Now, we may ask of God things. We may make requests of God, right? There's nothing wrong with that, but we don't tell God what to do. We can make plans, but we need to know the Lord directs our steps. And so Jesus says, follow me. Again, a true disciple, a true servant will follow Christ. And so he asks, let me go and, and first bury my father. And Jesus says, follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. Now you might be thinking, wait a minute. This man simply wanted to go and, and, and take part of, of a funeral of, of a family member. What's, what's so wrong with that? But there's more going on here. Uh, in fact, the Jewish people would have understood this because... He was probably wanting to fulfill the oldest son's duty to bury his father in order to obtain an inheritance. Or perhaps he wanted to uh, remain near the body of his father for up to a year to bury the bones, as was customary, and, and many of the Jewish people did at that time. Or this could also be a form of uh, procrastination, right? putting in and off and actually following Christ. In a way, the man could be saying, Jesus, I really want to follow you, but... I'm not quite ready yet. I have some things in my life that I want to take care of first. And then when I'm good and ready, then I'll follow you. 
you know, after my, my father's gone, then, then you'll, you'll, you'll be next in my life. Then I'll follow you. But in any event, we see Jesus, his answer makes it clear. This request would be involving putting tradition or the disciples' own desires ahead of serving Christ. So the Lord is against that procrastination of, of putting things off. And the truth is we don't know when our time is up. Um, we don't know when our last day on this earth is going to be. Uh, the scriptures teach very clearly that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord when we're with them in heaven. Even unbelievers are going to make that proclamation, but they're not going to spend eternity with them. So I would encourage you, beat the rush. Do it today. Make sure Christ is the Lord of your life. Right? Make sure that you know him as, as not only Savior, but also as Lord. And so we see Jesus says, follow me, let the dead bury their own dead. Which if you think about that, that's really difficult, right? For somebody who's dead to come out of the grave and bury someone else. So he's talking spiritually. People who are spiritually dead, right? Not people that are physically. And so he's reminding him here uh, to put Christ first and foremost in his life. At the same time, scripture and Jesus are very clear. We need to honor our parents. And so I don't want you to take the wrong impression that we're to ignore our parents, that we're to ignore those in our family. Ephesians 6.2 says that very clearly. Right? We're to honor our parents, right? And so we have to understand Jesus is to come first, though. And that would be especially so in this instance, that Christ is first and foremost in our life, uh, even before our physical family. And so this is a direct command from the Lord. And, and the truth is, Jesus wants followers who actually follow him, not just fans from afar. I see Jesus over there. He's doing a great work. Love it. I watch your movies. I'm following you on social media. Sounds great. No, he wants you to actually get to know him, right? To read the scriptures, to pray to him, to, to, to follow him. Allow God's spirit to direct your life in a way that would honor and glorify him. And, and we see the early disciples of that. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and Matthew, they quickly left behind what they were doing, and they immediately followed Christ. And they recognized the Lord, and they followed him at once. And so Jesus, again, is more interested in that quality of the disciple, that we're all in, we're fully surrendered. We're, we've, we've counted the cost, we're truly making that decision. As for me and my household, we're going to follow the Lord. He's more interested in that than huge crowds. And again, I know that goes kind of uh, against the grain of many today. And, um, and while we praise God for, for church growth, we don't focus on that. I mean, we don't focus on numbers. And if you've been here at Calvary Chapel, you know, we, we don't take attendance. I have no clue uh, how many people show up. We, we just don't count. Right? God doesn't tell us to, to count the sheep. He tells us to feed the sheep, love the sheep, serve the sheep. Uh, that's what we're called to do. And so uh, we want to make that our focus. We want to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, his word. And then we want to help people, right? Help people grow in Christ, make disciples who, who count the cost as they're all in following Christ. And so we believe that God will take care of the church. Uh, but we want to focus on making quality disciples, people who are really sold out and living for Christ, right? Husbands that are putting Christ first and foremost and then shepherding their spouse and their kids, 
right? Leading their family towards the Lord. So we see Jesus is, is encouraging those that are following him to be sold out, to truly count that cost, to make sure that they're not being wishy-washy, but they're, they're all in and pursuing him. Well, next we'll see that uh, some wind and some waves uh, occur um, during a storm as the disciples are in a boat, and we'll see what Jesus does. And so we'll, we'll uh, pick up here in verse 23, and we'll go through verse 27. It says, Now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be? that even the winds and the sea obey him. We'll pause there. We see that uh, the disciples are in this area of Capernaum, and um, this is a, an area that they would have been familiar with putting boats out into the sea. In fact, many of the disciples were fishermen uh, by trade or by family trade, and so they were experienced. This wasn't the first time out on the, on the, the sea or the Lake of Galilee. Um, and, and storms would happen frequently in that area. If you get the, uh, the wind from the east and, and the cold right there on the lake, you can get these quick storms that, that come. But we see for these experienced fishermen, this was a little bit different. This was like, this could be it, right? We see that they were terrified and they were panicking. And I've been through certain situations coming from California. I've been through earthquakes, uh, being out here. I remember being caught in a few storms out on the lake where it's raining and thunder lightning taking place. And I remember a time on an airplane where uh, our oxygen masks came down and, and then we had to brace for turbulence and we dropped a few hundred feet in the air. And, and so I've been through some of those kind of panicky situations in life where you'd like, this could be it, you, you, you don't know. But I can tell in each of those instances, everyone around me was fully awake. No one was sleeping, right, when those events were occurring. But here we see Jesus, he's asleep, right? He, he's, he's resting. And this might have seemed strange to the disciples, that he could sleep in the midst of such great storm. But I think this also shows us that Christ in his humanity needed rest. And, and, and as a busy of a guy he was with his schedule of healing and teaching and ministering, he would have to find times to take a break and rest wherever he could, even in some of the uh, most unlikely places. And, and the truth is, if you're um, doing a work for the Lord, and the truth is we're all in the ministry of the Lord, if you're a Christian, Welcome to the ministry. You're in the ministry of the Lord. We, we, we never get tired of serving the Lord. But sometimes we do get tired in serving. And we need to rest. We need to recharge, right? And, and so we kind of need that, that time where we take a break. And, and then we can um, be ready to then serve the Lord again. And so we see that 
there's physical limitations in these bodies. It's good for us to rest. And so we see that's what's taking place here. And it's a situation where all hope seems lost. And when we're in those situations in life, we can turn to Christ. And here we see that's what the disciples do. They, they came to Christ. They woke him in, in, by saying, save us. We are perishing. Again, these are experienced, most of them are experienced fishermen. And the first thing we see Jesus does is he calms their fearful hearts. He reminds them to have faith in God. You see, when you trust God, you can know that he is in control. And so Jesus helped the fearful disciples. He, he calms their hearts. He calms their minds. And we see that they're reminded to have faith in him. And there's a few people that come to my mind when I think about a life that is, is truly in control of just surrender to the Lord. I think of Job and the many trials he went through. I think of Joseph and being put in Potiphar's prison and then in the prison in Egypt and how you never see him complain. And yet God was with him and God was working all these things together for good. And it reminds me that we too need to have that heart. To know the world, the enemy is going to try and take everything it can away from us. But they can't take away our God. They can't take away our Jesus. God is always with us. And God is always working things together for our good, for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. So when we trust God, when we fully trust in him, there's little room for fear. In fact, you, you can't be fearful and trusting in Christ at the same time, right? One's going to kind of overtake the other. And that was what taking place here was they began to, to see that he was sleeping and think, well, we got to do something. And they're fearful and they go, well, let's trust in Christ again. Let's put our hope in him and wake him up. And, and we see that they realize that they need the Lord. And we need to have that same heart and same mind when, when we begin to get fearful. We need to realize that's not going to solve anything, right? Panicking is not going to uh, help the situation. We need to turn to the Lord. We need to trust in him and pray and, and ask him for help. And he will help. And so we see after Jesus helped the fearful disciples, he then calms the storm. And the wind and, and the waters obey him. They had recognized that voice before. When God created everything, he spoke everything into existence by the power of his word. And now they recognize that same voice and they obey. And we see the disciples were amazed at such power over the display of creation. And it led them to ask, who can this be? Who has power over nature itself? And it would have been one of those moments where if you could go back in time, you'd probably want to see the expression on their face <laughs> as Jesus calms the storm. Like, we've never seen that before. We've been out here a long, a long time, and man, that, that's, it's surreal. And yet the scriptures remind us that this was actually prophesied, that, that God would do this. In Psalm uh, 89, verse 8-9, it says, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise... You steal them. 
So the scriptures remind us that God is in control. And we see in a matter of moments, the disciples saw both the complete humanity of Jesus in his tired sleep and the fullness of his deity and his power over creation. They saw Jesus for who he is, truly man and yet truly God. How do those things add up? I don't know. But that's what the scripture teaches. It's a mystery. He's fully God and fully man. And so we realize that because Jesus is fully human, he fully understands us. He sympathizes. We have a great high priest who, who knows what we're experiencing. We can go to him with our needs and, and seek him, and he will hear and answer. And we can know that Jesus is fully God, that he alone can save us from our sins and rescue us. Jesus has the power to forgive us and the power to give us a new life with hope and purpose. So Jesus overcomes the grave. He conquers death itself. And that's the good news, right? That Jesus died on the cross for our sins, for all the things we've done wrong. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And yet he willingly went to that cross to take our place, to take our punishment for our sins. And it, it truly killed him. He was buried. He was in a tomb. But three days later, he rose from the dead. He overcame our greatest enemy, death itself. And he alone has the power to forgive, the power to give life, and the power to adopt us into his family. But one more thing before we press on. In Mark 4 and Luke 8, they tell us that Jesus told his disciples, let us go over to the other side. And I thought that was interesting. And maybe that's why Jesus rebuked them for having such little faith. They were fearful they were going to go under. But Jesus said, let's go over. Let's go over to the other side. And when we trust in Jesus, we can count on what he says to come to pass. There's, there, and if God says we're going to go over, there's no way we're going to go under. We can trust him. He's going to get us to the other side. And, and if you're young, you might not fully understand this. If you're advanced in years, you probably realize there's storms in this life. It's been said you're either going into a storm, you're in the middle of a storm, or you're coming out of a storm. And we're all going to face storms in this life. Would you rather face those storms alone, or would you rather have Jesus there with you? That you can call upon him and ask him to help you in those situations. And so no matter what storms you're facing in life, you can know that God will be with you. He will lead you through those storms. You can trust him. He is a good God. And he'll be with you and help you through that. Well, next in the last part of this section of this chapter, we'll see there's two demon-possessed men. And we'll see that Christ heals them and sets them free. So picking up here in uh, verse 28 and then going to the end of the chapter through verse 34. It says, when he had come to the other side of the country of the uh, Gadarenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a good way off from there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, 
go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. And those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Now, it is interesting in the other Gospels, in Mark 5 and Luke 8, it tells us more prominently one of these two men, probably because he was maybe more out of control or more prominent than the other. But we see here in Matthew, there were two men who had been possessed by demons and unfortunate men who had become unclean. They were living uh, in a cemetery near the dead and, and these demons began to torment these two poor men and, and wanted to be left alone. They didn't want Jesus to come and interfere with their horrible work. And so we see the first thing that they, they recognize, they acknowledge who Jesus is. They say he's the son of God. It reminds me that we need to recognize that even the demons know who Christ is. In fact, James 2.19 says this. You believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So the fallen angels that follow Lucifer, followed Satan, they know who Jesus is. They know he's the son of God. They know he is powerful. And so there's a difference between believing and acknowledging that he is and actually surrendering your life to him, to trust him, to obey him, to love him. They don't do that, but, but we do, right? So we intellectually believe, but we also trust him. We also love him, right? We obey him. And so we see that the evil spirits believe, but, but they fear and tremble in the presence of God. And they say, have you come here to torment us before our time? And they, so we see they know their time is coming. They, they recognize there's going to be a day of judgment, a day where they're going to have to give an account for all the things that they're doing. And, uh, and we see that they know Jesus has a power and authority over them. They recognize that. At the same time, it's important for us to recognize, as it says in... Um, was it 1 John 4, 4, that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Recognizing that when we're born again, right, God's spirit comes and takes up residence within us. Greater is the Holy Spirit within us than the enemy in the world, right? God is more powerful than the devil. Sometimes people have this, this view that uh, Jesus and and as God and, and the devil are like opposites, not even close, right? The devil is a fallen angel, a created being. He has not even nearly as much power as Jesus does, although he has a little bit of power, and he, he uses that power to torment people, and it should recognize, we should recognize that we are in a spiritual battle, and we need to recognize that how much we need Christ, but at the same time, we don't need to be fearful because God's spirit within us is more powerful. Um, and so we, we need to realize that, that there is a battle that is taking place, though. And so we see there's a swine or there are pigs that are 
feeding in the area, and for a Jewish person, this would have been an illegal occupation um, and industry in Israel. It was not kosher for them. The Old Testament told them they were not to eat pork, and they weren't to, uh, to have pigs as livestock. Um, it was unclean to them. But yet, both Jews and Gentiles populated this area, this region. Um, and so this could have been a herd of pigs owned by Gentiles. Um, but we see that the demons beg Jesus to cast them into um, the herd of the pigs. And probably because they didn't want um, to go to the abyss or the bottomless pit, they, they wanted to stay in that area. They wanted to hurt more people. And so we see that uh, they, they wanted to be cast into the pigs, and this other gospels tell us there are about 2,000 of them. And Jesus says, go. So you could say in a way, this is the first instance in scripture of deviled ham. Or you could say this is the first instance of swine flu. So maybe that'll stick with you, maybe it won't. But we see they enter the herd of swine, they run down the seat place, they perish in the waters. And there's really nothing comparable in all the Bible to this. It is a very interesting, a very remarkable miracle for these two men. And, and we realize that, that these men were, were chained. They were bound. Um, and, and they were hurt, right? They were prisoners. And yet we see that these evil spirits can take possession of a human body. And, and for, for me, and hopefully for you, it's a reminder, we want to stay away from the occult things, from things that have to do with witchcraft and all those kind of things. We don't even want to head that direction, right? Because many times those things will lead to this darker, demonic uh, stuff that you don't want to get involved in. And if you take a look at Scripture, oftentimes uh, what we find is uh, the demonic influence is connected to idolatry. When you begin to worship something other than God, you begin to open yourself to demonic influence. And, and we see that in the world today, right? There's people that think, well, I'm not worshiping anything demonic. But you begin to examine their goals and their intentions of killing life and hurting people and, and, and destroying lives. And you realize, well, it's, actually, it does seem like that. Because the scripture teaches that the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And that's what we see going on in the world around us, right? But Jesus came to give us life, a life more abundantly, life to the fullest, and knowing him and walking with him. And so we realize that uh, we want to stay away from all those things, and, and yet we know that God's spirit is within us. He is more powerful. And, and I believe this is important for us to recognize this as well, that as believers, um, we cannot be possessed by evil spirits. We cannot be uh, demonically possessed because God's spirit already lives within us. There's no room, right? He comes knocking, sorry, occupied, right? This is taken, right? Sealed by the blood of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't have those influences in our life, right? Because we can be oppressed by demonic things. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about this. We're to realize, again, we're on a battlefield. We're spiritual warfare, and uh, it says that there's the schemes of the devil, right? He, and if you've read the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, you realize that the enemy is trying to find ways to, to trick us or trip us up. Um, and so there's also fiery darts of the wicked one. He's trying to shoot at us. 
And so we need to realize that, right? The enemy is trying to get us to, to turn our backs on Christ and to fade away and, and leave our first love. And so we need to recognize that and, and, and rebel against the enemy. We need to put on the full armor of God as Ephesians chapter 6 talks about. And, and we also need to do what James 4, 7 says. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And so we realize that God is stronger. We trust in his power and his might. And we rejoice in all that he does for us. So we need not be fearful. Uh, but again, we don't want to be playing uh, around with those kind of things. Um, we want to we see people come out of those things and be rescued by the Lord. So know him as Savior and Lord. So we see after this miracle takes place, these two men are, are set free. They're healed. They're in their right minds. And, and what would we expect the townspeople to do? To be excited and be like, wow, we've never seen anything like this. These two men are restored. They're made whole. But we see the townspeople get upset after this miracle. They beg Jesus to depart from their area. And we would think, well, that's strange. Wouldn't he be happy? These two men have been delivered. But perhaps they were more interested in, in their pigs than they were in people. And it reminds me of a story I heard years ago on a Voice of the Martyrs radio. They were using one of those um, audio proclaimer devices. And they, this was coming to this part. And uh, the townspeople were very confused by what they heard. And they, they stopped the recording of the audio. And, and they were, some were very upset with Jesus. Some were very confused. And, and the missionary was perplexed on what was going on. And, and after a few hours, they came back. And the tribal elder um, said, we can continue. And the missionary said, well, hold on. I, I need to know what, what was that all about? What, what, what took place? And the tribal elder said, we came to the conclusion that a person is more valuable than an animal. And that as pigs herdsmen in our village, if we lose our livelihood to save one person, it's worth it. And so they began to realize the value of life. That's not an easy thing always for us. Sometimes we will value material things or we value our comfort over life, which is un unfortunate that, that people will get into that position. But how much more should we value life, the gift that God gives unto us? And so God heals these people. He, he sets them free from the influence of the devil. And he heals them and he restores them. It's a reminder that Jesus can break the chains that bind us. If we repent of our sins, we turn and we trust in him. Nothing can stop our God. You're not too far from him. You're not too lost. He can rescue you. He can make you whole. Give you a new heart with new desires if you let him. So in closing, we see people, they come and they ask Jesus uh, that, uh, to allow them to follow him, but later when it's more convenient. We see the disciples ask Jesus to calm the storm all around them and even the fear that is inside them. We see the demons ask Jesus if they can stay in the area instead of being sent to the abyss. We see the townspeople ask Jesus to leave them alone, more interested in profit than caring about people. And my hope is that we would do the exact opposite. That we would follow Jesus even when it's not popular. And you know that's starting to happen. 
making sure that we count the cost of truly being a Christian. May we trust Jesus to calm the storms and have his peace within us. May we allow Jesus to rule and reign in our lives and have the confidence of being with him in heaven one day. And may we be more interested in caring for people than any profit this world can bring. So let's be sold out in following Jesus. Let's make sure he's our Savior and also our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to study your word together. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to make sure that we're sold out all in and following you. Lord, we don't want to um, pretend that we're following you or follow you from afar. Help us to stay close to you. Help us to hear your voice as your sheep and go where you call us to go, that you would guide and direct our lives. And Lord, I, we just ask if there'd be any here who are going through a storm in their life, fear and uncertainty of what comes next, that God, you would bring peace into their hearts and their minds calm their anxiety, calm their worries. Help them, Lord, to turn to you, to trust you, that you are with them, and that you're going to walk through the storm and whatever they're facing, and you'll help them to get to the other side. And God, we pray for those who are oppressed by the enemy, that, Lord, you would set them free, that, God, you would deliver them from the chains that are binding them, and Lord, we pray for those here this morning, perhaps who don't know you. We ask God that today would be their day of salvation. And if you're here this morning or you're watching this online or listening to this later on, and you would say, Pastor Tim, pray for me, pray with me. I need to get right with God. I need to surrender my life to him. I need to ask for his forgiveness for my sins and, and truly follow him. And I believe he loves me. I believe he died on the cross for my sins, was buried and rose from the dead. I'm ready. I'm ready today to truly follow him. And if that's you this morning and, and you're ready to make that decision, I simply want to lead you in a prayer where you solidify that decision and, and to know, to know that you know that Christ is your Savior and your Lord. You can have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. So if that's you, I simply want to lead you in a prayer. I encourage you to repeat this after me and truly mean it in your heart. God, I realize that I am a sinner. And that my sin separates me from you. I believe that you love me, Jesus. That you died on the cross for all of my sins. That you were buried and you rose from the dead. God, I ask that you'd forgive me of all my sins. Cleanse me from all my wrongdoing. I surrender all of my life to you. Help me from this day forward to follow you and put your spirit within me that I may do your will. God, I thank you for knowing me. I thank you for loving me. I thank you for adopting me into your family. I thank you for being my Savior and my Lord, my friend and my King.
I pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Look, if that was you and that was the first time you prayed to receive Jesus Christ or perhaps a rededication, um, I'd love to chat with you after service, pray with you, give you some resources, give you a Bible. If you don't have one, 